good morning. We're at week three of a really exciting series, one that I've enjoyed a lot and I hope that you have too. If you've missed the first two weeks, don't fret or freak out because we're just going to pick up in Ruth chapter three today. You can kind of grab your Bible and start circling around that in the Old Testament to, to land on it as quickly as possible. We've been going through this story really like chapter by chapter, verse by verse, figuring out not only who this title character is of the story, but who are the other characters that kind of surround her that tell us a little bit more about not only who these Old Testament characters are, but ultimately who the God of the Old Testament characters are, and ultimately who he invites us to be only by his power and his strength. And, and I'm excited that we get to do that together. Uh, if we've not met before, my name is Nick Allen, and I get to be the campus pastor here at this location of Rolling Hills, um, and it's an honor um, to get to come to this spot, this space, and, and to talk about what it is that we're experiencing in the Word of God. A couple weeks ago, I shared with you guys that we had introduced our children to the, the Star Wars trilogy that we began with episode four, five, and six, just like they did in the 1970s, because we thought that that was the appropriate way to go. And we're dancing around these characters, and my son has really fallen in love with the Star Wars. And I'm just going to go ahead and say one of the reasons why I'm thrilled that he has embraced and gotten excited about Star Wars is because it gave the Power Rangers a little bit of a rest. I was just honestly a little bit tired of that one. And so I was super excited that like Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, and even Darth Vader came on the scene because much better story, if we're being honest. And as we've gravitated this, one thing that he's noticed and that I've noticed is that the music in the movies often lets you know far in advance what's about to happen. And some friends of ours actually got to go to um, the Schirmerhorn. I don't know if I say that right. I'm really embarrassed. Kind of like, like the symphony here in Nashville. And here, like all of this music that John Williams has composed through like six decades of making musical scores. Like all the iconic music that you hear from things like Star Wars and Home Alone came from this guy. And just incredible music. Well, you know the sound of Darth Vader coming because of the score that John Williams put together. And you know when the rebel forces are about to attack and something good is about to happen because of the score that John Williams put together. Your life has a score. You're thinking, oh, I wish my life had a soundtrack. Like, I wish that all of a sudden we're just walking down the streets and we just like began, we just like broke into song like it was a musical and everybody started singing not only the same songs, but performing the same choreography. And it actually moved the action of our lives a little bit forward. That may not be the case, but there is, a, there's a sound there's a, there's a, there's a tenor. I'm saying this at a music school of all places. Like there's, there's some sort of theme that runs through our lives and, and some sort of music that plays for people whenever you enter the room. And we want it to be ultimately the sound of Jesus coming on the scene. The sound of something good is about to happen. As we enter into chapter three, we're, we're taking some twists in order to get to the God part of this story. And a pastor that I like and follow, his name is John Piper. He says, the life of the godly, that's supposed to be you and I. Like our lives, the lives of the godly. It, it's not an interstate through Nebraska, which I've never driven through, but I'm assuming based on the context clues that are provided in the remainder of this quote, that it just means a straight shot. That somehow the interstates through Nebraska, straight shot. And, and our godly life is not necessarily that. But ultimately, here's something we can get on board with. It's a state road through the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee. That, that somehow our lives are not just this straight shot, point A to point B, this beautiful picture of what it's like to, but ultimately this winding road that takes us on lots of different journey points until we land at the place that God has for us. 
And that's the story of Ruth. It's certainly the story of Naomi. It's the story of this fellow named Boaz. And I, I think that it's my story too. And when I hear the song of my life playing, it's a banjo, Blue Ridge. No, it's really not. But it, it, it's hopefully um, the story of what God is doing to birth in me um, a godly son, a, a godly pastor, a godly father, hopefully somehow a, a godly leader, intent on introducing Jesus to the scene wherever that road takes us. And so if you have your Bibles by now, I've given you a lot of time. There's notes for you to follow along with in your worship guide this morning. And if you're not so much of a note taker, but you want to appear as though you are, you can take the connection card that's also provided in your worship guide. Give us a little information about yourself, especially if you're new and or a prayer request on the back, because we love the opportunity that we have um, as a church to pray for you and with you the things that God might be doing. We start out in in Ruth chapter 3, and we get these words. It says, one day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her. Now, we we know who these people are, because in chapter 1, this lady named Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, they left Israel. They left the place that God had brought his people, the place where they were supposed to live and set up camp and be his covenant people. And they left it and went to a town called Moab. Why? Because there was a famine. Now, that was a bad move on their part, because Moab was a place that Israelites were, like, strictly prohibited from going there or having anything to do with the people who lived there and they went and lived like we're going to go and we're going to set up we're going to live there we're going to raise our sons there we're not only going to raise our sons there we're going to let them take wives from there and so ruth she's not an israelite girl you're reading your bible and looking oh this is the story of god's people the jews well how come there's a story in here based on this character named ruth because she's not jewish she's a moabite woman that malon one of elimelech and naomi's sons married and you know that Elimelech died and then the sons Malon and Killian died and so Ruth and her sister-in-law Orpah are going with mother-in-law Naomi back to Israel why because there's food now like we're going to go back home because there's food and Orpah at the urging of Naomi turns back and goes to her own family of origin but Ruth says no and we get that iconic verse in chapter one she's like nope I'm going to go where you go I'm going to live where you live your people are going to be my people your God is going to be my God well here she is And that mother-in-law that she now lives with in Israel, not her hometown, but where she's staying, one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, now this is like, we're seeing a turn in the story. I'm not even getting that far into chapter one because all through this, Ruth's been called over and over and over again, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, big, huge sign across her forehead, you're not one of us. And right in the first verse of chapter three, my daughter. Okay, maybe, maybe she is one of us. He says, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked. See, Boaz was the wealthy landowner in chapter 2 that we met who allowed Ruth the opportunity to walk behind her workers with the women so that she would be protected, picking up grain, a little extra on the side for her so that she would be provided for Boaz, with whom women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Now, this is important because threshing floors have a place in Scripture. we got to know what they're about. We don't necessarily have, like, modern-day threshing floors. I don't have a threshing floor in my backyard that we go outside and thresh our wheat so that Susan can, like, make some bread and the bread. Like, we don't do that. Like, that's not a normal custom for us. But these threshing floors were places where people would go after they had harvested all of their grain. And they would first, they'd begin by... 
threshing the wheat. So they, they would literally have to like beat it to loosen up the seeds and the grain from the stalks and the straw. And then they would go through this process of winnowing where they would separate the wheat from the chaff, the stuff that they would throw away and burn because you can't use it, and the actual wheat that you would use to bake and to provide for your family. This threshing and winnowing happened on a threshing floor. So agriculturally, this was a really significant place, but it was also a significant place spiritually because it has a running metaphor all through Scripture where God himself would separate wheat and chaff, not like physical wheat and chaff, but spiritual wheat and chaff in our lives, like the sin that entangles us. Separating the good from the bad. Micah chapter 4 verse 11 says, There are many nations gathered against you. He's talking to his people. All of these nations, they're mounting up against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. They want to destroy God's people. But then he says, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. That he has gathered them here like sheaves to the threshing floor. That God is separating for himself a people. It's even a picture that we see in the New Testament. So spiritually, this idea of a threshing floor has no... It's, it's, it's symbolically a place of judgment where God would separate like the sinful from the righteous. His people from not his people. But then culturally, a threshing floor also had a significance um, because it was a place where men would work often until late. And they wouldn't want to leave their piles of wheat that they had just separated alone, like not under guard, so that other people could come and take their wheat. So they would literally sleep by it at night. So they would thresh and winnow wheat all day long. And then when they had this big pile before they would take it home, they would actually sleep next to it so that no one could take it. Well, these women of the night, I have to be careful, my 12-year-old's in the room, like they knew that. And so they would often come to the threshing floor to offer goods and services. <laughs> so the threshing floor had a reputation where some stuff looking down at the floor tended to happen. So Naomi tells her daughter-in-law, go there. Go to this place where a lot of work is happening agriculturally. Go to this place where there is a metaphor occurring spiritually, but also go to this place that is a little bit dangerous for you culturally and this is what you need to do verse 3 it says wash put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes then go down to the threshing floor but don't let him know you are there well of course not because it's a bad place until he had finished eating and drinking the idea of ruth make yourself ready and it's not for us just just a, a physical idea of readiness but but what does it mean to be spiritually ready for God to do something in your life. Why is she sending her there? She's sending her there to be provided for so that she can have a family, so that she can have a home, so that she can be redeemed. What does it mean for you and I to be ready for the thing that God wants to do in our lives? I, I often like to say that when, when God's going to do something, it might be big, so you need to lift with your, lift with your legs and not your back. So get ready. Like, well, what does it mean to be like, like slightly bent at the knee with arms stretched out, big load coming your way? Like, what does it mean to be spiritually, physically, emotionally prepared for God to do something in your life? Maybe it starts with asking, Lord, what do you want to do in my life? Maybe it starts with like looking, Lord, what is it that you're doing around me that I can notice and that I can see the way that you're moving? And what is it that your scripture says so that I might be prepared for you to act in my life in the way that your character has always caused you to act throughout scripture? I, I want to be a person who's ready. 
Just go down to the threshing floor. Don't let him know that you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And part of this, I think, is just because of the idea that this is no place for you to be. So don't let Boaz know you're there because we've already encountered in chapter 2 that he's a man of upstanding character. If he saw Ruth walking through the front door of a threshing floor, he'd say, girl, go home. This is no place for you to be. But also wait until he's, you know, finished eating and drinking so that he'll be relaxed. So that he'll feel it when he lies down. Verse 4. It says, note the place where he is lying. It's going to be next to his pile of grain because that's what he's guarding all night. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, this is when you get a little bit problematic in Scripture because um, in Hebrew, it's an idiom. I look down on the floor because I don't want to make eye contact. It's a little bit awkward. It's, an, it's a well-known idiom in Scripture that feet is um, representative of male parts. And so you're asking yourself the question, like, what exactly happened in this place? And scholars differ. Like, scholars differ over what went down in this circumstance. Some say that Ruth probably fulfilled the role of one of those women of the night. And I'm going to be adult about this. That would have been very consistent with her Moabite heritage. In fact, it would have been very consistent with what went down in, in, in Genesis chapter 19 that birthed the Moabites in the first place. But I'm not altogether sure, and a lot of other scholars aren't altogether sure that that's, in fact, what happened. It says, if you go on in Scripture, it says, um, Ruth responds, and she says, I will do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor. She did everything that her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and all was in good spirits, he went, she uh, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled a man. He turned, and there was a, a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. It's dark outside, you know, there's no electricity, no light switch on. You know, they didn't pull up his phone and, like, turn on the flashlight to try to figure out who it is. Like, she responds, I am your servant, Ruth. Like, this is everything that Naomi has told her to do up until this point. And then she goes rogue. She says, she doesn't wait for him to tell her, like Naomi said, what she's supposed to do. She goes rogue and goes beyond the instructions that her mother-in-law gave her. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer. If your person likes to underline things in your Bibles, you should underline that phrase, guardian redeemer of our family. She's asking Boaz to not just be the guy that allows her to pick up grain when she's following behind the man along with the group of women every single day working real hard in the field. She's asking Boaz not just to be the guy that protected her so that she wouldn't be taken advantage of by all the other men that are working those fields. She's asking Boaz to do something a little bit more to guard her as a redemptive family member to take care of and to redeem the things in her life that's broken. She's a widow. There's a brokenness and a pain in her life. She was married to Malon for 10 years, chapter 1 says to us, and it doesn't tell us anything about a baby in the family, which was highly unlikely for people in that culture and in that day. They would have tried to have a baby day one. We waited six years, which we thought was like really, really necessary, but they would have tried to have kids right away and over and over and over again until they got that son. So for her to have been married with Malon for 10 years and to have produced no children so that there would have been grandchildren coming in tow with her and Naomi as they approached back into the life of Israel, chances are good. Some scholars tell us that maybe either she was barren or her husband couldn't produce. And in either account, it would have been considered her fault. So here's this broken woman who's not only lost her husband, but left her whole people group and not brought any sort of children to the table, she's asking for redemption. 
We, we fix what's wrong. And, and, and the words that are used here are important and, and they really should be important to us. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. That corner, it's literally the Hebrew word kanaf. It can be translated as wing, extremity, edge, border, corner, or shirt. It's the word that we read in Numbers chapter 15 where where God says to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you were to make tassels on the corners of your garments. So they would wear these tassels on the corners of their garments, these prayer shawls, and there would be tassels hanging around on the end of them. And God told his people, you were to make those tassels on the edge of your garments and it will be a reminder for you that I am God. In Exodus chapter 19, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings. It's the corners. It's the border. It's the edges. I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In Malachi chapter 4, we read these words. It says, But for you who fear my name, you people who worship God, the Son of righteousness. This is a prophecy about Jesus shall rise with healing in his wings. And so all these places in Old Testament scripture where we read this corner, this edge, this like hem of the garment or this place where God brought his people to himself, where he rescued them from Egypt and eventually a son that was going to come and he was going to rise with healing in his wings. It didn't mean that Jesus was going to be going around like, like flying big hot man wings coming out of his backbone. No, it meant that there was going to be something special about the edges of his garments. Something special about the the corners of the prayer shawl that Jesus would have likely worn. So much so that this woman who had been internally bleeding for 11 years, we read about this in the book of Luke. This woman who approached Jesus on crowded streets, like people pressing in on all sides. And she sees him coming and she reaches out. And as a boy, I thought to myself, well, she reached out for Jesus because she wants to tap him on the shoulder. And she can ask him, Lord, will you please heal me? Or she reached out to Jesus and she's hoping to grab the side of his arm just to kind of shake him and get his attention. Pull him to the side for the moment and explain the condition that she's been her no she didn't accidentally miss and trip and get bumped by a person and only get a chance to reach for the hem of his garment she was going for the hem of his garment all along why because malachi chapter 4 verse 2 told her to go for the hem of his garment there's healing there all of a sudden jesus feels some power go out of him and he tells her daughter daughter your faith has made you well Because she believed that there was going to be something significant. There was going to be redemption. There was going to be healing. There was going to be power in just the hem. And so Ruth, using that same word, when she asked Boaz to spread the corner of her garment over the top of her, she's asking for healing. She's asking for, fix what's broken in my life. It's just me and Naomi out here, working like dogs, trying to make it for ourselves. Will you fix what's wrong with me? She's asking him to do something brave. And it makes us ask this question like, where's my brokenness? Where's, where's my difficulty? Where, where's your brokenness? Where's your difficulty? Where's your point of loss? Where's your point of frustration? Where's your great point of need? Because you and I, like the woman who was caught bleeding or like Ruth who was destitute without it, might just need the great God of this universe, who is Jesus Christ himself, to spread the corner of his garment over us so that we too can be redeemed. We too can be made whole. We too can have. She's asking for a future. 
And just so there's no mistake of what's going on here, she wasn't just asking him in the book of Leviticus to fulfill some Levite law that he would buy some land so that she and Naomi could own the property that Elimelech and his family had left behind. No, she's asking him to marry her. Ruth is proposing to Boaz. It's like the soundtrack all of a sudden switched to Beyonce. And it's like, if you like it, then you should have put a wing, get it, wing on it. Because... We need to make this serious. What she's asking for in this moment is not just for a covering, not just for a piece of land, not just for some financial redemption. She's asking him for marriage. She's asking, will you take me? Similar to what God did for Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, the Lord says, Later I passed by when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner, kanaf, of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Ruth is saying, can I be yours? Will you be mine? And will you not just fix what's broken in my life, but will you take me as part of your life? For Ruth, Boaz, who was a member of Naomi's family, Naomi, who she covenanted to be a part of forever, Naomi, who she said, I will stick with you no matter what. May the Lord do something really bad to me if anything but death separates us in this life. When that commitment was made to Ruth for her to go to Boaz, a member of Naomi's family, she's keeping her commitment. And then you've got to wonder for for Ruth, Boaz, not just a member of Naomi's family, but a member of the house of Israel. Ruth is also staying part of the covenant. Okay, so go with me for a second. Middle of the night, laying down by a heap of grain on a threshing floor and Ruth goes up to him and she uncovers her feet if in fact it was a little bit more than Boaz's big toe that she revealed that day this would have likely been only the second time in her life first Malon and then Boaz that she saw a circumcised you know what that circumcision was a symbol of the covenant. Ruth couldn't go out and conduct a DNA test. She wasn't grabbing a cotton swab and swabbing the inside of his mouth just to verify that he was in fact part of Elimelech's family and was in fact part of the Jewish nation, but she could verify it. And the sign and the symbol was, if you take me on, this Moabite girl, this girl who has no business being a part of this family, then I get to be Not only your wife, but I get to be part of the covenant relationship that you have with your God. And feet in this moment may have very well been the sign. We get a little bit panicked thinking about that, but then we have to be reminded that nudity in this culture wasn't as like taboo and weird as it is in ours. Now listen, I hope that nudity in our culture stays taboo, and I hope it stays weird, and I hope we never get to the point where we feel like that's not odd. But in this culture, they lived in like one to two room houses with lots of extended family members. This is not the first time that she had seen males. She had cousins and brothers and uncles. Who knows? But 
very likely only the second time that she had seen covenant representation of God who had chosen for himself a people and was now quite possibly inviting her to be a part of that. For Ruth, choosing Boaz wasn't just a way to be financially redeemed. It was a way to keep the commitment that she made to Naomi and it was a way to be a part of the covenant relationship that they had with God. Boaz's response The Lord bless you, my daughter. And this is why I believe that nothing funny happened on the threshing floor that night. Because Boaz didn't refer to her as a woman of the night. He called her daughter. He called her a a term of endearment, a term of respect, a term of, yeah, you, you can be part of this family. He said, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. You haven't just come here to town looking for a husband, trying to get that MRS degree. The first one died. You got to find a new one. No, black widow. No, he says, you've not come. But instead, you've wanted to be faithful to the commitment that you made to Naomi. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. The answer is yes, I will do for you All you ask. And then he goes on to say what he had just said in chapter 2 previously, that she was a woman of noble character. He says, all the people of my town, this is your reputation, Ruth, all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And you want to know how significant this is in the moment for her to be called a woman of noble character? This is the same, very same word that was used in Proverbs chapter 31 to talk about a wife of noble character or a wife as the New American Standard Bible says to us, a wife of excellence. It's this picture, Proverbs 31. There's a whole ministry about it, telling women how to be godly in life. And like this ideal, what you're supposed to do and what you're supposed to strive for and what would make you this picture of godliness and righteousness in the world. Like Ruth, the Moabite, is now being called daughter and referenced as noble. And so for all generations, anybody who would have read this scripture or heard this scripture recited out loud, they would have literally attached the word noble in Ruth chapter 3 to the word noble in Proverbs chapter 31 and said, it doesn't matter that she's not one of us. She has now become the noblest of us all. And he says in verse 12, although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. And that's when you get in this business of like first cousins twice removed and all this kind of stuff that I don't understand. But apparently there was a relative that was closer to the family than Boaz was. So he says, stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. Okay? If he wants to do the duty, if he wants to buy the piece of property, if he wants to allow you guys to go and live where Elimelech's family had always lived, and if he wants to take you on as his wife, then it's like it's only fair that you get to go and be with him. Let him redeem you. But here's the promise. If he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives I will do it. That's like pinky swear promise. As soon as the Lord, as sure as the Lord lives, that's like 100%. I'm going to do it. Lie here till morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Listen, we don't want, like, nobody can know this. There's going to be, like, you've got this great noble reputation. We don't want to see that slandered anyway. Nobody can know that you're here. He also said, bring me the shawl you were wearing and hold it out. 
When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley. And if you go to try to figure out how much barley this is, it's a wonder that she could carry it. Like she was literally, it's, it's all that like gathering. Like she'd been doing a bunch of gathering. Remember chapter two said that she worked from morning until night. Like girl had been like, she's like CrossFit Ruth. So like she's going to be able to carry six bales of barley home. And, and, and so in verse 16, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go? My Moabite girl. No, how did it go? My daughter. Then she told her everything that Boaz had done for her. And she added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty handed. And Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. You got this picture of Ruth, this this noble woman, this Moabite who had no business being characterized in this culture, in this day and age as anything but a scandalous, dirty Moabite that we're not supposed to talk to. But now she's characterized as a woman of noble character. Her reputation was as shocking as it was widespread. Everybody, Boaz said in the community, knew that about her. Everybody knew who Ruth was. And this noble character was being attributed to this Moabite girl. It was shocking. You know, ultimately, what's notable, what, what, what's characteristic of the reputation of the Christ follower, what's, what's notable, what should be notable about you and I, what, what should be recognizable about you and I, even before we enter the scene, the sound that people should hear when we come into action, like what should be easily recognizable about us, should be wildly unique. It should be very different from the rest of the world. And it should be completely and definitively obvious. He says, Christ followers, it's not enough for us to be uh, like courteous. We've got to go like over the top with generosity. There's other people in the world who don't love Jesus who can be courteous and who can be... We've got to go over the top with that courteousness. When I was growing up, I always heard like, hey, if you can't say something nice, don't say something at all. That's not true. Well, it's not, well, you shouldn't say anything. Like, if you can't say something nice, don't say. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has infiltrated your life and you ascribe to the words in this book, if you can't say something nice, something's wrong. Because we should be the first people who have something nice to say. We should be the first people who are ready to, to breathe life and to breathe freedom and to breathe generosity and to bring love and kindness into the equation of life. It's not enough for us to be just base level, common, courteous and kind. We got to go over the top and overflow with love. It's not enough for us to care simply about the well-being of others. We've got to have a deep level of concern about the spiritual well-being of others, particularly this community that God has called us to be a part of us here for a reason so when people look at anybody who walks in and out of these doors what they hear is the soundtrack of freedom coming what they hear is music that reminds them help is on the way what they recognize is a people of god who yeah we call it reaching out growing up and giving their absolute all to do something that shows jesus to the world and that's gonna have to be unique it's going to have to be like over the top. It's going to have to be wild. It's going to have to be audacious. It can't just be, oh yeah, this common level of baseline kindness, mediocrity. Forget that. It's got to be so kind, so full of love, so full of life, so full of hope that people are shocked by it. It's got to be so noble, so righteous, 
so life-giving that not only are people shocked by it, but they desire it. Jesus talked about that. In Matthew chapter 5, he was explaining to people in the Sermon on the Mount what it meant to be someone of love. And he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You want to know something that's shocking? Love people who are different than you, people that you don't like, people that even consider themselves to be enemies of yours. He goes on to say in that passage of Scripture, if you love people who love you, what reward will you get? Even the tax collectors do that. And that would have been like, oh, goodness gracious, punch in the stomach to the God-fearing Jew of the day. You're comparing us to tax collectors. Even, even tax collectors love people who love them. What good is that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than... Don't even pagans do that? That would have been a punch in the stomach to the God-fearing Jew of the day. What? You're comparing us to pagans? Yeah, they greet people that they know nicely. We're supposed to go out of our way to show love, out of our way to show kindness, so much so that we are willing to love people that consider themselves our enemies, even pagans, the very enemies of God. We're to be a people who illustrate our deep love for them. And so we ask ourselves this question, one to consider, is the life change that's been birthed in us? Is the journey that we've taken with Jesus Christ as noticeable to others? As we might hope. We're keeping our commitments in such a way and remaining so attached to the covenant in such a way that simply by the fact that we've been redeemed and covered up by Christ, it's obvious for others to see. Like without him even knowing, it is just natural for people to recognize Jesus in us. You know, for Boaz on the story, Fulfilling this promise to Ruth meant taking a big risk. We've already said over and over again, she's Moabite. We're not supposed to have anything to do with those people, but yet he's going to take her as his wife? Possibly. We don't know. He's got to go and ask if somebody else wants to do it first. That could have been Boaz's out. Maybe somebody else will do it. She was also married to Malon for we know at least a decade with no kids. She could have been barren and not given him. It was a risk. But what God calls us to and often requires from us will always cost. She said, if anybody's going to come after me, be my disciple, he's going to have to deny himself and, and take up his cross and follow me. And we know the place that Jesus went was difficult. Following him, doing the right thing, stepping up, being rich, it's, it's going to cost us. And it should. Boaz wants to go and check with the other family member. And, and Naomi says at the end of that chapter, hey girl, get ready. Because if he's going he's gonna to fulfill this promise and he's not going to delay. Boaz had to check and make sure that there wasn't someone else who had a right to Naomi and Ruth before he did. His... We're going to see a picture in, in the coming weeks of the, the lineage. And if you were with us at Christmas, you read this. You know that Ruth is in the line of Jesus. This Moabite girl it is one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. And so you're thinking, I've got to put this together in the story. So there's this great, great grandson of theirs, Solomon, who said a lot of wise things. There's this great grandson of theirs, David, who had an opportunity to kill King Saul, but he wouldn't violate even the law of God in order to accomplish even the will of God. And maybe he got that from Boaz, an upstanding dude who was like, hey, if there's a rule, even if I want to follow through with this, I'm going to step back and just make 
sure. And our executive pastor has this phrase, and it's really just about being cautious and yet faith-filled. It's like sometimes you got to go slow in order to move quick. It's this picture of waiting on God. And sometimes our waiting on God looks like us sitting on our hands and doing absolutely nothing. But that's not what Boaz was doing. He was going and seeking out, hey, is this other brother going to come and do his duty in this moment? No, it wasn't what Ruth was doing. She wasn't just sitting on her hands at home waiting. She was carrying big loaves of barley back to her mother-in-law and reporting that God was doing something in their lives. They could sense that a load was coming off of their minds because God was providing for him. And so I'm asking myself over and over reading this passage and trying to understand the context for what it means to me today like this idea of what when i'm waiting on god what does my waiting look like is it passive and doing nothing or is it actively trying to follow what this word says so that i can be found righteous so that i can be found holy so that i can be recognized as noble and so that the rest of the world looks at me and says there's nick allen boy he smells like love boy he looks like hope Boy, it sounds like Jesus whenever he's coming around. Those are certainly the things that I want to be true about my life and the life of my family, but I want them to be true about the life of this church. There's a soundtrack playing here. And we want it to be one that even in our waiting, even when we don't know what's next, we're in a period of waiting as a church because in March of 2020, we won't get to be in this building anymore. And we have, let me just go ahead and tell you, no idea where we're going next. There's people looking, actively looking and pursuing, but we don't know. In the meantime, we're going to bring some wheat to this community. In the meantime, we're going to load ourselves down with hope and love and peace and kind words and take it out of the doors of this place so that other people see and also hear what it's like to know and follow Jesus just because they encountered a people from here. It's going to be an active waiting. It's going to be a hope filled waiting. It's going to be an all out pursuit of Jesus so that other people hear and see and smell him coming just because they encountered the nobility of us. Kelly, who's one of our Bible study writers and she attends this church. In fact, she's teaching next week our, our closing final chapter of Ruth. She'll be back from the Amazon and bring our chapter four message next week. She wrote a Bible study on the life of Ruth. And she says in that, the place of surrender is the most freeing of places to be and the very hardest to get to. It's not an interstate through Nebraska. It's a, a winding Tennessee road through the Blue Ridge Mountains. We're going to go somewhere. It's going to be hard to get there. But it's going to be worth it. People are going to come with us. Because on the way, we sound like Jesus. And we're willing to wait on him no matter what. Do what his word says, no matter what. Come what may. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we are grateful for the life that you lived and the words that you gave us. Even these Old Testament stories of truth that teach us about your father. And not only that, but teach us who you want us to be. I pray that we would be 
people who are willing to step out and take risks. People who are willing to go hard even in our waiting. People who understand what it means to stay behind you and not get ahead of you. People would it people who understand what it means that no matter where we go and no matter how hard it is, we, we have you and we get an opportunity to represent you to the world. God, for anybody here today who is just trying to figure out this whole plan of redemption, here's what I ask that you would cover them and offer them a, a peace for their brokenness that only you can provide and offer them a covering that they didn't even know they needed. For those of us who are trying to figure out what your plan is, I pray that our waiting and our listening and our hoping would be active and we would be very busy loading ourselves up with good wheat to take home and to take out into this world in the process of trying to figure out just what it is you want from us, God. And I pray that in all of us would be just an aptitude and a desire to take big risks for you we're your covenant people not because we were born that way but because Jesus died for us so that we could be yours so that we could be brought into this family so that we who should have been regarded as Moabites instead get to be called sons and daughters it's in the name of Jesus that we pray blessings on this day and on the obedient response that we make to your word Amen. Thank you guys for being here and for hanging and being a part of this series. Um, we come to this moment in our worship gathering where we take up tithes and offerings. And this is an opportunity for people that call Rolling Hills their church, their home, um, to give back to God's work here. Um, that we would get to see him multiply our resources and opportunities to, to do amazing things in this community and around the world. And, and as these guys and ladies, as they come and to collect that tithe and offering, I do invite those of you who are brand new to drop in that connection card. Or those of you who've penned a prayer request to drop in that prayer request so that we can partner with you in prayer this week. And as you do, we're going to watch a video from the Amazon and our team that's been serving there abroad this past week, um, telling us a little bit more about the work that they've been doing, a, a work that these dollars go to support and a work that we're invited to be a part of. I and some others in May are going to get to take one of these trips down the river. And in July, I'll be going back for another one of these pastor's conferences um, to see and experience all the things that are happening here. And for now, as we continue our time of worship, I just want to pray and ask God to bless and multiply these resources so that we can do more things like this. Father, would you do what only you can do and take these gifts in the manner in which they're given freely not out of like obligation or, or, or pressure, but just as a chance to say, God, you're good to us. And we want to give back to you because you've been so generous to us. And so, Father, we ask that you take it and multiply it and do things that only you can do around the world so that more people can get to hear, hear the name of Jesus and just how good and hope-filled he is. It's in his holy, perfect, precious name that we pray. Amen.